What do you want us to talk about? Well, I thought you could talk about the growth that's happened over the last 20 years in the organization, not in the field, I mean. So the science was something, and we thought we were cutting edge in 93 and 95 with James, and then in 98 other things happened that were fantastic. But there's been so much growth in the field in the last three years, in my opinion, things we've added from uh, resilience engineering, HRO, uh, there's so many people coming together now at the conference. We don't even know what is – you guys tell me. What is this going to look like in five years from now? That's I would love to hear what the experts have to say about that because I wouldn't have guessed we would have been here. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Pre-Accident Investigation uh, Podcast. I am the host of this podcast, young Todd Conklin of the... Todd Conklin clan of people who fly around all over the world and get jammed into airplane seats and get treated like crap by people who I pay for them to treat me that way. You know, that's how it works, but I'm trying to be kind. This is a year to be kind. I'm looking for good. I'm trying to do all that good stuff. And so that kind of leads me to the never ending story of my life, which is um, talking a lot to people and writing stuff down, and recording podcasts, and then sitting in airports. That's what I do. And that's why today's podcast is interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's just go to the horse's mouth. Today, we're going to talk to a fine gentleman who I've actually known quite some time. Um, His name's Scott Griffith. If you don't know that name, that's okay. I mean, that's not going to be a problem after today, but you ought to know Scott Griffith because he's someone that you ought to know. And I think the reason Scott's bona fides are interesting for our conversation is because he's really, really, really involved in new safety. But he comes at it from from an an, an angle that I was just formally complaining about earlier. Scott spent 25 years uh, at American Airlines, and he was... He, he he is a cat. He's a cat. I don't think you take that away, right? He's an international captain. He's a captain. Captain Scott Griffith is what I probably should have said. But what he really did that interests me is not just flying a plane and looking cool, which totally does interest me. What he really did was serve as the managing director of, of safety and quality evaluations. And he was involved at a bunch of levels with the journey that aviation took towards resilience, reliability, and the new view. So he's a physicist who's a pilot. So you know you know we're in for a treat there. You know, because physicists are my people. You spend as long as I did at Los Alamos, physicists are comfortable. It's like a, it's like an old shoe for me. I mean, I'm that's a, that's a good group to be around. And Scott pleasantly agreed, and I was so happy that he did, to have a conversation because I think – this is a side of our discussion, the aviation safety side of the discussion, that we, we don't have enough of, and we should. Now, I'll grant you, I think aviation safety is a very good analog for us to look at. It's different in, in how complexity and variability works than it would be in manufacturing, but I think that's what makes the conversation worthwhile. The great thing about Scott is he's completely approachable. So if you have questions or comments after this podcast, talk to him. He's really, he's quite easy to get a hold of. Um, and he's, he's worth talking to. 
because what we talked about, and we were at a little, uh, I think they call that a cocktail party. I would call it a great chance to eat as much cheese as you could possibly squeeze, and they had empanadas. And if you can have empanadas at a party, it's a, it's I'm in. Hummus takes away from a party. Empanadas put into a party. That's my theory. They had empanadas and guacamole, so I, I could have stayed there forever, right? But Scott and I sat down at the table in a quiet moment, as quiet as we could possibly make that moment, and talked about really his journey and, more importantly, the journey that kind of is happening around him. And and it's worth it. It's completely worth it to hear his story. This is a great podcast. Sit back and relax. I think you're going to find this incredibly interesting. So without further ado, here is uh, here's Scott and myself sitting at a party talking about his career, aviation safety, and where this is all heading. My, my path to, to this place and time and space uh, took me a, a really crooked path. Yeah. So I started out as a, as a, a physicist who became an airline pilot, and in 1985 I witnessed a plane crash. So in that plane crash, it was, a, it was this enlightening moment for me when I saw Delta 191 crash. It was a, a Lockheed Delta 11 at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. And on August 2nd, 1985, the plane was coming in on what looked like a typical summer day. And the result of that flight was that they had a catastrophic fatal accident. And it was a, a, a term that had only recently been identified by Dr. Theodore Fujita uh, at University of Chicago. Right. Uh, and he, 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 he termed it a microburst or a downdraft phenomenon. Right. So I, I hooked up with Dr. Fujita and uh, the folks at NASA and the U.S. Air Force and left the airline temporarily and went and worked in the field of uh, physics to design a LIDAR system to measure wind shear ahead of an aircraft. So the metaphor became for me, the reason that plane crashed was because the pilots couldn't see the, the risk in front of them. Right, right, right in front of them. Yeah, and they saw rain off to the side, but all the conventional radar up until that time measured precipitation returns. And so my area of background in, in, in laser physics was being able to model um, uh, wind in atmosphere that didn't contain precipitation. Right. So we use LIDAR to help the pilot see. So that became a central driving metaphor for me in aviation that, well, every plane crash is something that we see. And so we, we I came up with this imagery, which is well known across the world, separate from aviation, of, of the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Most accident investigations, RCA investigations, involve something that's known, something that we see that occur. The metaphor is all the things below the surface, the everyday uh, systems, right, right, the system right. contributors, which I know you, you're an expert in, in documenting what those system influences are, and the everyday human performance often gets us to, to, to positive outcomes. So they go undetected and un, un, uninvestigated. Right. So over the course of time, as I got involved in doing the work in aviation, we were able to shift a paradigm away from uh, principally using black boxes, which, by the way, they're, they're not really black. They're Day Glow International. Right, right. Yeah. You need to be able to find them, right? You so, find them, yeah, right? it makes a difference. But, but when I took over as um, the head of Safety American Airlines, 
we actually had five people on staff, if you can believe this, and they, their job was literally to wait for the next plane crash. They were accident investigators trained as forensic scientists to go in and reconstruct what happened when a plane crashed. And fortunately, we were able to shift the paradigm over time to where we started using black boxes or the analog to black boxes was something called flight data monitoring. Right. Well, we looked at digital quick access recorders and telemetry to actually see what was going on in the airplane in, in, in almost real time. Uh, we, we, so we would monitor data that would typically only be available after a crash on a daily basis. And from that, we were able to pick trends and through regression analyses show that there was patterns in the chaos. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so... On the flip side of that, on the human side, in 1994, I developed a program known as the Aviation Safety Action Partnership, which was a unique program in that it moved the FAA, the federal regulator, away from an enforcement posture to manage the airline safety to a, well, let's take a risk-based approach to seeing what's below the surface. And we looked at pilots and mechanics and dispatchers and flight attendants as the eyes and ears to help us see below the surface. And the program that we started in 1994, I'm proud to say, has become a cornerstone of the safety management system approach in aviation. So 10 years following that time period, actually from 1995 until 2005, using those predictive methodologies, the airline industry reduced the fatal accident rate in the United States by 78% something that had been unheard of prior to that. And it happened through a collaborative effort with labor management and the the, the scientists. Right, right. So in 2000, the Surgeon General invited me to come into healthcare and try to emulate some of those successes. And being young and naive, I thought, well, sure, we can do that. Yeah, why not? Can't be that hard. What I recognized, and and I know you come from the nuclear and the, and the, the power sector, where you have principally one dominant regulator. Right, right. Who, in your case and in my case, became risk-based. Right. Healthcare, which is regulated principally state by state, with over 500 regulators. Right, right. That don't talk to each other right. and don't play in the same sandbox. And so where I was used to, if we, were, if we could convince a regulator and a couple of major unions to, to go a certain direction, the entire industry could move in, in lockstep. Not so in healthcare. Yeah. So the vision that I think Charles is, is looking forward to and talking to you and me is how can we generate the success we've achieved here in this multimodal forum to bring in other industries with really vastly different backgrounds, experiences, and mindsets, and can we find a common ground? Can we take some of the successes? And by the way, I, I, I have to say that a lot of times in healthcare in particular, we, we, we're good at emulation, but we're not good at replication. Right, I agree. So, so we'll take something that, that achieved well, good results in manufacturing or nuclear. Well, let's take nuclear, for example, where with, with systems engineering and, and, and all the resources you have to define or design defenses in depth don't exist in healthcare. Right. Because you'll have 100 nurses administering chemotherapy to 500 different patients on a day, each one of them who doesn't understand the, the, the design principles of barriers, redundancies, and recoveries. Right. right. These are people that are focused on doing a job. Caregiving. Caregiving. Healing the sick. Right. Healing the sick. And as technology increases, you see a changing demographic where 
nurses of my age didn't sign up to be programmers. Right. And yet that's what they do when they go in and, and administer medication. But it's, it strikes me that we have to shift really the out. The, so we've, we've created – one of the things you guys did in aviation pretty early is you, you, you really increased your sensitivity to weak signals by doing all sorts of things. Mostly what you did was create a space where the definition of safety wasn't the absence of a plane crash. It was the presence of this capacity to not crash. That's right. And so you took this really forward thinking. You move safety from an outcome to manage to really a, a system, a, a process, a capacity. It's something that you managed when you did it. The challenge we have, I think, in healthcare, well, there's a couple challenges for sure. One is the complexity in healthcare is so different than aviation or yeah. nuke power or even manufacturing. If they make yeah. Pringles, every Pringle at the end of the line needs to look like every other Pringle. They right. stack, right? I mean, right, they're designed right. to look like each other. Right, right. Whereas variability and complexity in healthcare is just nuts. Right. I mean, it's crazy. So it's a nonlinear system that's going to require a, a very, very adaptive set of tools or resources or capacities to actually impact the, the ability to be successful. Well, that's right. And in mathematical terms, I, lo- I love the, the term nonlinear dynamic system because, as you know, in nonlinear system, the boundary conditions mean everything. Because right. if you start with, 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 with small variations in the boundaries, you'll get widely variant results right. because of the, the exponential influences. What we know about healthcare is that because... Most healthcare professionals don't understand engineering, don't understand systems thinking. They approach everything with a, with a strong human bias. Right. And that strong human bias, and, and I have to say, with, with respect to my ex-colleagues and dear friends, doesn't start and end with human behavior. There's a, there's, there's a pattern to the chaos. Oh, the, in my opinion, behavior is the... Most, most overused and least interesting part. It's just, yeah. it's 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 terribly abused as a term, and it, it means nothing. Well, it, it's true, but the reason I think it exists is because we're human, and, and somehow in us is this. Speak old, for yourself. That, well, God, true, speak true. For well, well, that's true. Well, engineers may not be human. I know. I'm, I'm convinced they're not. Yeah, and physicists are definitely not. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so, so you make a good point. So. I think that there's a, and I call it the sequence, and I call it, the the book I've written is called The Hidden Science, and I I say it's hidden because it's been hiding in plain view. There are people in engineering that understand systems thinking. Yeah, absolutely. They're the behavioral scientists, they're the neuroscientists, and they're the attorneys. I have to give credit to the legal system. However, none of those smart people sees a complete picture without an understanding of, of, of right. totality. No, I, I hear you. And so, so what I call the sequence is a very simple. I had a professor in college, uh, Todd, who told me one time, Scott, you seem to have an intuitive grasp of the obvious, and I've been told <laughs> that all my life. I thought it was a compliment, but I came to, to realize it was an insult. But, <laughs> but my sequence of reliability is in order to manage risk, I believe you have to see it, and you have to understand it. And they're, they're two different things. So the metaphor of the plane crash, those pilots didn't understand a microburst because, one, they couldn't see right, it. They couldn't see it. They didn't know it was there. And they didn't understand the right. dynamics. The they, physics, They, they right. knew what wind fields were. They knew what rain was. They knew what hail was. But this was something different. It wasn't new in, in terms of geological time, but it was new in their experience. Right. right? And so 
without, and that's a metaphor for the entire aviation industry. Whereas the dominant driver prior to the mid '90s was we learn about aviation. They call it a tombstone mentality. Every crash, we learn something. Well, that's an inefficient and ineffective right. way to learn. But we we shifted the thinking. So I think the sequence is see and understand risk first. Understand and manage system reliability, then human reliability. And the last piece, which people will sometimes debate me on, is organizational reliability. And the reason I put organizational reliability last in the sequence is, what is an organization but a collection of systems and people right. that are interlocked? With, with, if, if one assumes that – so one must assume – if you assume free agency – then organizational reliability would be the last one. If you assume more predestined sort of cultural outcomes, then I would suggest worker behavior, operator behavior, is really a function of the organizational behavior. Yeah, they're, a, they're very intertwined, yeah, right? But see, with the words you used, and I, I respect your work. I've, I've read a bit of it, and we've, we've gotten to know each other. You, you personified an organization. You say organizational behavior. Right. The truth is, is that systems don't behave. Systems operate. Right. Right. And, and people behave. Right. But together, we have an organization. Because you can't have one really in, in today's world without the other. It, 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 it's, yeah, no, I, 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 get, I hear what you're saying. The, the assumption that the organization is a function of the individuals in the system, I, I think there's a collective sort of uh, energy that's created well, yeah, well, by, by multiple people. And so it, it, it's like the word culture, right? It's the most overused term. It's crazy. It's, it's, it doesn't mean anything really. But what you're really looking at is sort of a collective understanding, kind of a unified vocabulary, yeah, right? You're, you're, and so you're really looking at the way people think and process information collectively. And, that, and so that's, that's reflected in language and in... It, it, so there's a lot. There's a lot there, right? I, I still, I'm not. I think we're in pretty good agreement on this. I mean, I think, I think your order. I mean, we're now sort of arguing how many angels dance on the head of a pin, right? Sure, sure. But I think your order is exactly right. I mean, to me, to me, what I'm hearing you say is that we need risk competency, right? We don't need risk aversion. We don't need risk control. We don't need risk management. We need risk competency because risk is really dynamic. Yeah. Right. And, and you must be able to recognize it and then understand it, which are two very, very different things. Right. I mean, the, the 737 MAX 8, MAX 9, which yeah. you must be thinking about all the time, right? Wow. I mean, that's a really interesting case where where we introduced, not we collectively, but Boeing introduced an entire new failure modality into a plane. It, they did it as a, as, a, as a control, as a defense, but it introduced a whole new way for a plane to fail, and they didn't tell the pilots. Yeah. Which at some level, I would think every pilot, I mean, I'm not a pilot, but I would think that would be about the most offensive thing, the, the, the largest breach of trust Boeing could have had against their primary users of their of their so, tool. So that, that has to be offensive. So I, I don't know your, your viewership on the podcast, but I will say this. Um, it's common practice for professionals such as ourselves to to not comment publicly on accidents that are currently un, under, right. underway. However, I, I will speak in general terms, and I, I can compare that accident to the British petroleum oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. If you look at the sequence of reliability, what I call the sequence, 
it doesn't start with the human performance. It doesn't start with how we train the pilots. It starts with, did we see and understand the risk? Right. When they changed the configuration of right. that airplane, the engineers understood that it had a tendency to pitch up. Right. So when that does, it can overcome the pilot's ability to react. But all of that, whether it's whether the plane responds via automation or pilot control, is dependent upon sensors. It's, it's a garbage right. in, garbage out. If you tell the pilots that the, the plane is upside down and they can't see, they're going to react as if the plane is upside down. If you only have one source of information, and that source of information is bad, well, any freshman engineer student will say, well, you put in a redundancy. You right. Know, you have right. more than one source. Right. So it starts with seeing and understanding the risk and the, and the engineering principles. Similarly, when you look, this is, by the way, it's going to lead to a really fascinating conversation about organizational behavior because when you look at the Gulf oil spill, what happened there was essentially, in engineering terms, the failure of the primary shutoff valve. The BOP, yes. And the secondary shutoff valve that had not been tested. So any engineering student said if you've got a critical function relying on one component and that component fails... What's the system going to, to, to how is it going to react? Well, remember this from school? Yeah. Two equals one, <laughs> one equals zero. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, now here's the oversight thing. In today's world, whether it's a Max 737 or the, what, drilling a mile beneath the ocean surface in the Gulf of Mexico or a healthcare state-of-the-art laser-guided you know, deep surgery, you can... You can outpace the regulator's ability to understand the, the sophistication of it. So I remember uh, I was testifying before Congress in the, in the late 1990s, and, and right before it was a subcommittee chaired by Norm Mineta, who was uh, House uh, Representative's chairman. And, and the, the speaker before me was a Boeing field rep. And he left the committee with these words. And I'd like to convince you that Boeing is capable of policing ourselves. And I stood up and said, as the chief safety officer of American Airlines, I have to disagree with my colleague because the public deserves something better than any one entity saying, trust me. Yeah, trust me. We can do this ourselves. So I'm a fox. This is a hen house. Whether, I'll be fine. Whether it's the Lehman Brothers financial institution or pharmaceutical company or nuclear plant... We need good government, and we need government. We need risk-based oversight. Yeah, governance. And so I, 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 I like to say in, in terms of regulator oversight, we need two things. We need expertise, and you need independence. And if you don't have one, you don't really have the other. Yeah, fair enough. Beca because you can be independent, and you don't know where the proverbial bones are buried. Yeah, no, you're fair, fair enough. Right, fair or enough. you can be an expert inside, and you can be coerced, or you can biased, or you can have a conflict of interest. So how do we fix this? What, what's well, what's the path forward? Look at look at look at our living document, the U.S. Constitution. You know, it's a common debate to say, or is the government working today? And you say, well, they, they had the foresight to say it's an evolutionary system, right? Not perfect, flawed in deep ways, but it is evolving toward system improvement. Right. And the answer for me is to bring multiple regulators from different industries with different approaches to oversight and take the best of what has worked. And then here's the key, is to translate them effectively. Because you can't take what worked in aviation or nuclear 
stick it into healthcare and say it's going to work as designed. It can work with the proper adjustments and understandings, but every every new experiment is a new test, right? Every it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I asked my 11 year old daughter to explain the scientific method, and she gave me a beautiful explanation of what it is. Nice, really. Yeah, you the make, Baconian, you the Baconian a, description. Absolutely, and that's what I don't see in healthcare. We take a checklist and. You know, there's some great work that was done out in Michigan. I won't mention the, the authors, but they did some great work at applying checklists in a surgical suite. And the whole industry said, wow, that's great. They went and used checklists, and guess what? Those results have not been replicated. Well, yeah, because they're horrible. That's right. I mean, because the, the premise of that is really that the organic nature of creating the checklist is as important as the checklist itself. That's right. So and what's so what's what are you doing now? What What's what's your solution? Hi. Uh, I think the solution is double down on the science and, and, and make the science do what science is good at doing. Yeah. Question. But but we're in a time right now where science is not terribly valued. Absolutely. In the government. Yeah. Not, not necessarily in industry. No. I, in fact, in industry, I see quite the opposite. Exactly. And the government is a, is, a, is, a, is a living temporal body that's evolving. It's going to change for better or for worse. So it's funny. You say all systems are moving towards, or the Constitution is moving towards improvement, where I would tell you all systems run degraded. I, I, can, <laughs> I can get that. I get it. Well, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, determinants, uh, agency. Uh, 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 I think that, you know, and I have a debate with people. And I look at, well, well, there is chaos in the world. Sure, absolutely. There is randomness. Sure. But the world isn't random. Right. The, the world is not determined. But the, it's probabilistic. But the, and the physical world is, right? Yes. The problem is, is that when you put those overlays of, of sort of humans interacting with the physical world, that's when you get that nonlinear, non-Newtonian sort of response, right? Which is the big fight at a conference like this um, with the belief that everything eventually has a linear causal root that you fix. Yeah. In fact, that's that's almost never true with people. It's a myth. Yeah, it's, it's almost myth. never true, right? It's a myth. That what we really have are these very, very complex relationships, these couplings yeah. in these complex systems that are constantly in motion that are filled with tons of variability. Absolutely. And, that, and that's what people, people are constantly trying to manage uncertainty. But what you guys taught us in the airlines, you know, what you were a part of, gosh, it doesn't seem, I mean... Ninety-four doesn't seem like that long ago, but it's a pretty long time ago, right? Is what you guys taught us is that uncertainty isn't what you manage. What you manage is really the capacity to have uncertainty, right? And that's that's kind of the wind shear discussion. That if if we can have people understand what it is, and then we identify an instrument that helps them see it, lidar, then in fact what we've done is we've built a system that's ready for that uncertainty to happen again. And that's pretty exciting. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I am optimistic, Todd. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to look around the world and say things are retrograde. But, but uh, I think that in the scientific circles, which you and I have currency, I think it's, it's we need to double down on, uh, and my kids taught, caution me on using that term, double down. I think we need to reinvest in science and yeah. make sure that what we're looking at is, is science from multiple perspectives. Or, or even yeah, so I agree with you completely. And even the the transverse of that is we ought to be able to call non-empirical things yeah. not science. Right. That's right. right? So you you look at um, yeah. I don't know, personality inventories or these Absolutely. kind of non-empirical things that you're just like you know you're yeah. just making crap up here. Well, here's an interesting the, one. the Heinrich model, the pyramid. It's a, it's a non-empirical. Yeah, exactly. It's a myth, right? It's a myth. Yeah, just as the Swiss cheese is. And yeah, 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 a lot of things. 
Okay, so, so here's an interesting, uh, I can't tell you the institution. But it rhymes with Marvard. Uh, no. <laughs> How did, how did she, I was guessing that. Uh, you were, yeah. Crap, I've ruined your story. You, well, okay. So uh, I, then I will call it out. Uh, they, they, they've hired us to come in and do a probabilistic analysis. I really got that the first time? Yeah. You, this is yeah. psychic power yeah, right here. Yeah, yeah. Harvard, Harvard <laughs> Medical School. And uh, we're, we're doing a project on uh, physician burnout. And I'm very excited because what we're bringing to the table is – is, is, a, is a way of seeing human performance inside a system, inside an organization. And whereas they're focused on the human aspects because they're doctors. Right, right. They're doctors. To diagnose it. Yeah. I said, in fact, they told me, they came in and said, well, here's what's wrong. And I said, wait a minute. So stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, if I came to you as a patient and said, here's what's wrong, here's what I want you to tell, treat me, you would say, stop. Yeah. I'm the doctor. We're going to do diagnostics. We're going to test you. They hated that too, I bet. And they said, <laughs> what do you mean? I okay. said, well, I, you know, and I said, by the way, don't, don't flatter yourself and think that only doctors are burned out. I mean, you know, every healthcare professional I know has post-traumatic stress at some level. Yeah. Every EMS operator. You know, there's people in law, law enforcement officials. Oh, totally. Officers. So, so I just interviewed the chief pilot for ICAO. Oh, is that right? And he told me that pilots, commercial pilots have a suicide rate about a third again higher than the average population. And it's all very empirical. I mean, he's a, he's a college professor. Did you know that? No, I did not know and that. And it has to do with burnout, lack of status, goofy schedules, loneliness in the cockpit. Yeah, there's a, I don't remember the whole list, although it's a good podcast. You should listen to it. Yeah, no, I don't. But I, you, you, you picked my interest here, so I, I, I don't know. So... Without being able to comment on that. Yeah, no, no, no. That's what, a sidebar for sure. What, what, what's fascinating about what we're going to do is we're going to come in, we're going to overlay our approach to a different way, a different set of lenses to look at human performance inside nice. complex organizations, much like what you and I have talked about today. Nice. And it's going to be a lot of fun. That's excellent. Thanks for your yeah, time, my man. My pleasure, Todd. This was really fun. I've enjoyed it so Let's much. Let's do it again. You want to? I would love to do it. I'll come to Dallas anytime, yeah. and you can come to Santa Fe. Well, most of Dallas comes to Santa Fe. They so do, yeah. Just carpool with someone. <laughs> It's that easy. <laughs> carpool. Yeah, carpool. Okay, Todd. Well, let's do it again. Thanks, Scott. Okay. See you later, buddy. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. So what do you think? Huh? <laughs> He's really interesting. He's someone to talk to. We could definitely spend more time with him. I think the next time I'd like to be in a room that's a little quieter, um, although that was fun. I don't know. It wasn't too bad. I hope it didn't bother you too much. It was fun to be there. We were actually outside, so I was happy. It was kind of a patio deal. It was like the TV patio thing. But I'd like to go in and, and, well, first of all, I'd like to really pick his mind, comparison, contrast, sort of the journey aviation was on versus the journey industries on. That would be a really good one to talk about as well. But there's so much there. I mean, he's, he's got a lot going on there, and he's done just a lot of work in the field. So that's that's kind of amazing. It was, it was a great way to spend time. It was a great podcast. Thank you, Scott, for taking the time and talking to us. And thank you for listening because it means a lot. This podcast means nothing if you're not there. And we're sort of doing it just for us, right? I mean, this is a chance to build community and learn and do all that kind of crap we like to do. And that's what we're doing. So tell your friends, subscribe, write a review if it's good. That always seems to make some kind of huge difference. Although now we're, we've we been doing this so long. We've been together so long. It hardly matters anymore. <laughs> but we're probably not going to stop. And a lot of people are listening, so that's good, right? But until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, when you sit in that airline seat, 
nestled in between those two comfortable armrests and that tray table in front of you that other people have wiped snot and other awful things on. Remember these words. Be safe. Talk to you later. <laughs>